the power of it was, I mean, one thing is, I don't know how big Verizon's Ukrainian audience is, but the statement they made within 24 hours, every other cell phone provider in the country, and I think globally, followed the suit. And that's when I realized that people who, like corporations actually have the power in this war as well. And it's all about making choices that align with their culture values. And that was DJ's and Verizon's culture value that acted here. What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Breakline Arena. We are so grateful that you are here. The Breakline Arena is a space that welcomes changemakers, hustlers, and leaders in the tech industry to share their journeys and passions and insights. We are hosted by Breakline Education, which serves to help top performers from underselected backgrounds land new and exciting roles in the tech industry. If you're a person of color or a veteran or a woman, there's info in the show notes about how to join our community. Now let's dive into the arena for today's special guest. Welcome, everyone. I'm Bethany Coates from Team Breakline. Delighted to have all of you here with us today. I see lots and lots of familiar faces, and I'm so glad that you can join us. Oleg, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for making time for this conversation. Thanks for having me, Bethany. You bet, Oleg. And I want to jump into the conversation and first just set the stage for all of our guests here today. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Give us a sense of your background. Absolutely. I was originally born in Ukraine. Went to school there initially, and then I moved out to United States for university in 2003. Studied political science in Boston, and then moved to Canada after school. Did a couple jobs there as a salesperson, and then started my own company, the first one called Symmetry in 2011, which I successfully sold in 2014. Met my wife at the time in Canada, and we both moved to California, and she became a doctor here at Stanford, and I started People AI in 2016. Here we are six years later. Thank you, Oleg, for that that little bit of background. And we'll get into more of your background. But as we get started, can you talk to us about People AI? What are you all building together? Yeah, absolutely. So we are an enterprise software company that's building systems for large enterprises that help their sellers sell more and companies grow their revenue with the help of big data and AI. That's kind of a very high level statement, but the system basically understands what the best sellers in a company do and then helps managers coach the rest of the team to be more like the best sellers. So everybody makes more money. So Oleg, partly because of your background, you all had a pretty significant team based in Ukraine and you were planning and preparing to potentially move them out of the country as early mm-hmm. as November, I think. Yep. Can you talk to us about your mindset, the team's mindset, You know why you were prepared so early to make these moves when lots and lots of companies and individuals, both in the country and outside of it, were caught off guard by the fact that Russia actually invaded? That's a great question. So this is not the first time I'm going through this process. I was actually running Symantria in 2014 when Russia invaded for the first time. And I had a team in southern Ukraine on the border with Crimea. It was a much smaller team, but I had to go through this roller coaster of emotions again. And then obviously that we didn't move the team out back then, but the team was all kind of staying in what remained as Ukraine. And then I learned some patterns. I learned the behavioral patterns. And since then, I've been watching the Ukraine situation very closely. However, this time it was very different. 
the escalation in rhetoric was very different. The people who should not be throwing statements that they don't end up doing around were making those statements. The lines in the sand were drawn multiple times. So this felt very different in 2014. And this felt very different than everything we've seen since. And that spooked me. And so on the other hand, the philosophy was it's better to be overprepared than regret afterwards. So we started preparing just in case, but as the rhetoric was escalating, we were getting more and more confidence that we're doing the right thing. Was there a moment or an action in that period leading up where you said, now's the time, we've got to move? Yeah, it was sometime mid-January. And I got a hunch that we've got to move now after Vladimir Putin made demands with or else statement. And I just don't see a world leader of that caliber. Now that we know, obviously, all the sentiment about him walking back on his words to another world leader like Joseph Biden. So that's where I knew something has to happen. And so you moved your team out. Most of the team Mm -hmm. moved to Mm -hmm. Western Ukraine and into Europe. And then Russia invaded shortly Mm -hmm. thereafter. And one characteristic of this war that's unique is actually how civilians have been participating in different Mm -hmm. ways to help and support Ukrainian civilians as well, the population and the government. You've called this the world's first open source war. Can you talk to us more about that term and what it means to you? Yeah. So typically in the past wars, we would know what happened from the news afterwards, not from the social media and people on the ground as it's happening. And the result, from my opinion, of more real-time communication sharing is that you now feel empowered to do more and that doing more is actually going to make a difference in the short term versus if you read in the news something happened yesterday, you don't feel as empowered to do that again. Or you need you feel like you need much, much bigger resources to make a difference. And so with both most people in Ukraine having access to social media and connectivity to the Western countries, having had access to Europe without a visa for the past almost 10 years, as well as with, we'll probably talk about the Starlink project, the ability of modern technology to maintain continuous connectivity into the country. The information streams out of Ukraine persisted and have grown. Combine that with most of Zelensky's team, that I know really well back from being from the same town as them, are all media people. So they know how to manage communications. They're all media trained. They know how to present themselves and the facts as they are and be engaging in their presentation of facts. All of those pieces have created this kind of real-time communication system around the war that engages more and more people to jump in and contribute. Mm -hmm. And Oleg, you started feeling at a personal level the Mm -hmm. impact of this war very quickly. You've written about two people close to you, one a childhood friend, an actual distant relative who was killed on Mm -hmm. the front lines. And another close friend of yours, doctor serving as a combat medic, who asked you to be responsible for his daughter if anything happened to him, and he's serving on the front lines. Can you talk to us a little bit about these relationships and the heroism, really, that these folks are exhibiting? Yeah, I'll start with the latter, with uh, with my friend Artyom, who is a combat medic. 
This is not his first rodeo. First of all, he is not subject to Ukrainian draft as a single dad. His wife, the mother of his daughter, passed away several years ago for medical reasons. And he could have just gotten on a train out of the country with his daughter and left. But both in 2014 and now he chose to go and save lives just because he understands how big, how big of a shortage is of doctors on the front lines who have combat medicine experience and how much of an impact they can create. And so this is a pretty personal moment where when the war started, the first about 12 hours, I was a little bit in a shock, just like sitting. I was with Kevin, who is our chief of staff, who is a breakline alumni. And the only thing I could do, we were on a business trip to Rally and in New York, New Jersey, where we met with Verizon to that story. And the only thing I could do is just sit there and refresh news. And then a friend of mine, the, the medic guy, calls me up and he's like, texts me on, on Telegram. And he's like, hey, I'm enlisting. Went to the front lines. It's really bad. I don't know if I'm going to come back, but please take care of my family, whatever you can do. And the only thing I could say is, yeah, you got it. I will do what I can. And so, yeah, with his family, we put them on a train to Western Ukraine rather quickly. A few people from People AI truly stepped up and just managed the experience and the process throughout. And we got them on a number of trains and buses to Prague. And now hopefully we're going to move them to Canada where we found volunteers who will take them and their families. But that was a really personal moment. Never thought I'm going to be taking responsibility for someone else's family, but that felt like the right thing to do. We also ran a fundraiser and raised what our money was needed to buy the missing equipment for these folks. So that's happening. And then throughout the fighting, I actually saw on Instagram, out of all things, an image from the funeral of my third cousin. He was in military. He was a military artillerist and he was killed in action. So that was difficult because I mean, I literally recognized my grandmother standing in the background in the Instagram post. But then on the other hand, you know, the motivation there was, even though I'm in the United States right now, I'm not on the front lines and I feel like I should be contributing. Those two episodes truly motivated to do what I can. And I want to get into the actions that you've taken since mm -hmm. those times, you know, really action taken out of grief and out of patriotism and a sense of responsibility for other people. And your actions went from, I'm going to care for this one family to how do I really think much more broadly about how I can help, you know, an entire population, an entire country. And so there are many initiatives here, and I, I really would like to go through all of them. But one that I thought was so fascinating was the fact that you teamed up with Elon Musk to help install Starlink internet into bomb shelters and other places in Ukraine. Can you talk to us about this project? Yeah, absolutely. So right when the war started, and I have a number of friends who are pretty high up in Ukrainian government, just because we're from the same city and it's a smaller place. I get a phone call from someone I know really well on National Security Council, and he's like, hey, look, we have intelligence that two to three days from now, our TV towers will be hit in every city. And we all remember the images of missiles striking TV towers. And he's like, the goal will be to shut down the news broadcast and take down the main source of information for people and basically make it chaotic. And like, so how can I help? And he's like, well, if you know Elon, he almost said it like a joke. We'd love some Starlinks. And I'm like, I don't know Elon, but I can probably get to him. And by then, there was a group of about 150 CEOs that got together on WhatsApp. 
that all had some exposure to Ukraine, either teams there or they're Ukrainian or whatnot. And so I go to the group and I'm like, hey, does anyone know Elon? <laughs> Within a few minutes, I get a bunch of introductions to him, his chief of staff, Starling folks, et cetera. Long story short, next thing I find myself is talking to the person who reports directly to Elon, kind of in charge of Starlink. And we are loading up a private plane full of 500 kits, Starlink, same day to be shipped to Ukraine. And I'm calling all my folks in the Ukrainian government to make sure there is someone meeting them in Poland and they have all the trucks and kind of decoys and whatnot to make sure that this first shipment doesn't go sideways. 48 hours later, we had 500 high-speed internet dishes in the country, which we gave TV stations and bomb shelters, hospitals, all the critical infrastructure, as well as folks in the front lines, but only in kind of absolutely needed scenarios. And then the TV towers get hit. What was very gratifying is that the downtime on the TV channels of Ukraine was only 18 minutes. So it all went dark, and then 18 minutes later, we're back online, which was really interesting. It just took people time to replug the cables to the new way to uplink the data, and we keep on going. Definitely saw some confusion in Russian ranks of why nothing happened and what's up with this country. And then after the first 500, we're bringing in 1,000, we're bringing in another few thousand after that. And so now I believe we've reached the critical mass of how many individual connectivity points Ukraine has to sustain large-scale communication needs, irrespective of whether someone cuts the cord or not. Amazing. I want to layer on this initiative with another one that you worked on with Eric Yuan and team Mm -hmm. to provide free Zoom accounts Mm -hmm. across Ukraine. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah. So it is public knowledge that Zoom is a large and successful customer of People AI. And one thing that I got a ping from the Ukrainian government about, it was, hey, one, we kind of are using free version of Zoom. And so it was a little bit uncomfortable when we had to restart the call when free Zoom stopped the conference call with White House at 40 minutes. So if you know anybody at Zoom, that would be very helpful. And I'm like, yeah, I can help with that. And then as I started reaching out to my connections at Zoom, which were very cautious and moved really fast to fix the, to get the right people talking, we also realized that Ministry of Education of Ukraine was looking for help in using Zoom as the educational vehicle for millions of Ukrainian kids who are all over Europe, all over Western Ukraine, if you think about this, they don't speak much English. You cannot just put them into a school in Czech Republic or France. They still need some Ukrainian education and some familiarity as well. Or if you put yourself in the shoes of thousands of people who are sitting in Kiev metro stations under the air raid alarms, because all Kiev metro is a big bomb shelter. And these poor kids are sitting in the dark, in the cold not seeing daylight for days in a row, scared, there's no better way to keep them entertained and and engaged than to give them the ability to attend classes virtually. That's better than nothing. And so, yeah, that was really good. And I connected the folks on the ministry side and good things are happening since. It's amazing. And one thing I'm struck by is your humility in telling these stories. You're one person really taking action, affecting the lives of millions of people in crisis right now. And I just find it so impressive. I didn't want the moment to go by because you're so understated for all of us to really look at that fact. You and I have talked about 
President Zelensky as a master storyteller. And mm-hmm. this combination of Starlink and Zoom has also enabled him to continue telling the story of Ukraine and telling the story of the Russian invasion, often in extraordinarily tragic terms. Will you talk to us about the work that you did behind the scenes to position him to successfully address the United States government? Oh, that one was fun. Uh, Same person reached out to me. He's like, hey, we're working on a number of these parliamentary presentations that will be taking place. And one of them is U.S. Congress. And we really want to strike the chord with the U.S. audience. Do any people who are very much into U.S. history and know it probably better than us Ukrainians? And I thought of a friend of mine who is an ex-U.S. Marine who is very well versed in U.S. history. Like every time you meet with him, there is quotes and you're like, where do you get it from? He's like, oh, that's Thomas Jefferson. And so I ping him and long story short, he organized about 40 other folks from Marine Corps on a chat somewhere, WhatsApp or Signal, something like that. And they all kind of started reviewing all the previous talks by Zelensky and coming up with messages from U.S. history that would make Ukraine's struggle relevant to what the U.S. populace went through and how U.S. populace earned its independence. And so next thing that I see is a Word document coming from them with like 20 pages of relevant things. Like That's awesome. And so I shipped it over to the Ukraine side. And then a few days later, I'm watching the Congress address. And the address was very well based on the U.S. history. So it was a proud moment where he gave me a smile where we could make it a bit more relevant. And when the video was from the Congress where people literally crying, that means the message got across, the right message got across. So Zelensky, one of the insights about President Zelensky that there's been a lot of commentary about is that the fact that he was an actor before he became a politician caught some people by surprise and Mm -hmm. might have even been sort of a subject of derision. And in fact, it's become one of his greatest strengths. As you've said, he's a master communicator, a master storyteller. You have written about him as an extraordinary leader. And I'd love for you to share with our audience the reason why, you know, as you look at him, as you look at his behavior, as you look at the way that he communicates about this tragedy, what is it that he's doing that is resonating so deeply with you? You know, your question makes me go back to the moment that happened on the second day of the war. I literally, like the way I can describe it, I felt his leadership physically until that certain moment. And all of us remember when Joe Biden offered him a ride with U.S. Special Forces out of Kiev when fighting was, and I know Kiev really well, fighting was literally two, three blocks away from where Zelensky was physically. I mean, he was in mortal danger. And he responds to to U.S. president with, I don't need a ride, I need more ammo. Like, I remember the physical sensation that I had completely change. I was in downside risk protection mode before then. I was like, okay, it's game over. How can I help minimize the risk and the damage and the danger into, oh, wow, we actually got to fight back and we got to figure out how to push back as well as we can. And the level of motivation, the level of physical, almost like encouragement that I felt at that moment is something I've never felt before. And that's where it was actually a lesson for myself. I'm like, that is what leadership feels when someone, by example, jolts you 
into being a better version of yourself. And that's where I think all of the country turn around and and we see now it's a very different story than 48 hours into the war. Do you think that Ukrainians knew what they had in their hearts before this happened? You think they knew how brave they were, how courageous, how patriotic? I don't think so. I mean, obviously some people were and there was a subset that has gone through 2014 war and I mean the war has continued, but it was a grind. It was the we must do this, but not this is what we're gonna do following our leader. And that changed that moment that changed me, it changed a vast majority of the country. Mm-hmm. Had Zelensky taken that ride, it would be game over within 12 hours from there. Mm-hmm. But he didn't, and he turned to everybody and he gave that energy to everybody to get up and get to the fight. I think that galvanized the people who knew what needs to be done from 5% to 70%. And you can't fight 70% of people. Mm-hmm. I saw this image that a Ukrainian graphic designer had created, and she had superimposed the size of Ukraine onto the Russian map. And yep. it was a pinprick. I don't know if you saw it. Yep. And she was using it as like, this is the magnitude of Ukrainian bravery in this moment. It truly is yep. a David and Goliath fight. But then to see how this outgunned, outmatched country is just fighting back, I saw a headline that President Zelensky is the head of the free world. He is the head yep. of the democratic world. And you're such a great example of taking his lead and making an enormous difference. An additional story I wanted you to tell was the story of TJ Fox at Verizon. Yeah, that was an interesting story because there was probably less than 12 hours into the war. And I have I was, I was in rally. We were supposed to, Kevin and I were supposed to fly into Newark and drive for an hour to the meeting with TJ Fox. And this was middle of first hours of the war and my board members are calling me asking, Hey, are we okay? Like, how are you okay? How are you doing? And everybody's panicking to evacuate people out of the country. And so we go to this restaurant with TJ and it was really hard to talk about business with him. And he realized that, that I'm supposed to be there on a business meeting with him, but I'm not there. And he spent the first 30 minutes just getting to know me and understanding how I feel about it. And then we did touch upon some business and all that stuff. By the time I get back to San Francisco next day, or a couple of days later, without any warning, he just sends me a text message with a screenshot of a press release. Say, hey, I came together with a number of folks here at Verizon, and we put together our heads, and we thought how we can help. There's many ways, but the one that's most immediate is people must be calling Ukraine, trying to find out if their relatives are safe, or what can they do and tried to help, etc. So we just made it free to call Ukraine from any Verizon phone number. Let us know what else we can do. And I'm like, that's a very creative, small thing you could do. And the power of it was, I mean, one thing is, I don't know how big Verizon's Ukrainian audience is, but the statement they made within 24 hours, every other cell phone provider in the country, and I think globally, followed the suit. And that's when I realized that People who, like corporations, actually have the power in this war as well. And it's all about making choices that align with their culture values. And that was DJ's and Verizon's culture value that acted here. And that also gave me, because it was so early in this process, it gave me the ideas 
of where I could help and what kind of leverage I can apply on the situation, which then unfolded later into the Starling project and other projects we discussed. It's amazing. And I just keep thinking as you tell these stories, here you are, a civilian, a civilian in a different country far away. And you know very well, like that Breakline first worked exclusively with veterans. And I've always admired their service and just felt like I want to find a way to serve those who have served. And you found so many ways to do that. I'd love for you to tell one more story. And then there's so many questions coming from our guests. I want to turn it over to them. There was an additional way that you and a small group of people really impacted the course of this invasion. And that was with Google traffic. Can you share a little bit more about that? Yeah, I actually, so I was talking to my friend who is a combat medic on Telegram as they were deploying. It was literally probably 12 hours into the invasion starting and he wouldn't tell me where they're going, obviously. Um, And we're texting on Telegram and then he passes the word to me, something along the lines of, hey, what do you think happens when you have 30 to 50 trucks moving at 30 miles an hour on the highway? Like, I don't know. He's like, check Google Maps. And I literally logged into Google Maps for Ukraine. And I started seeing that Google traffic would show convoys of Ukraine. I mean, obviously, I'm sure you can see Russian too, unless they took the cell phones away. But you could see red traffic where the military were on the map. And so when I realized that this could be a significant exposure used by the enemy, I reached out to the folks in Google right away. And within minutes, we had senior people there and they were reacting. And within maybe less than an hour or two, they had just shut off the traffic layer in the country. And I was very impressed by how quickly they acted and also how, I mean, that probably saved a lot of lives. Thank you, Oleg. I'll turn it over to some questions from our audience. There's one from Dan who says, aside from the tremendous resolve of the Ukrainian people, what do you think it will take for Putin to stop this invasion? Pressure from within the Kremlin, pressure from the international community. What is it going to take? I wish I knew the answer to the question. We would be in a very different place with the war right now. But my personal opinion is that Western pressure is not going to help. I mean, it's we already it's so deep into it that at this point, caving into Western pressure is losing face. And that's not something that Russian leaders would do. I think pressure within the country is another one that unfortunately is not happening. The repressions in Russia have been so severe for so many years that civil society has literally been neutered, unfortunately. And then from within Kremlin, I mean, we can hope, but I don't think it's something that we can rely on. Therefore, the only leverage that exists right now in this conflict is the resolve of Ukraine and Ukrainian fighters and Ukrainian people. I personally believe that May 9th is the date where everything is culminating because it's the Russian Victory Day, the day when they won the Second World War. I've heard rumors and intelligence that Russia was planning to roll over Ukraine in 72 hours and then celebrate on May 9th with the parade in Kiev and Moscow. Well, parade in Kiev is not happening. Now the question is, what kind of victory can Russia present as victory on May 9th? Which means every next 30 days are decisive ones. And 
every inch of the land that Ukraine is losing is basically lost for good. But it's also worth holding strong right now because there's a decision fork that will be happening less than 30 days from now. Thank you, Oleg. Dovetailing with your response, Lexi is asking, could you share your thoughts on the misinformation and propaganda being spread in Russia? Well, that's a big one. So there's a few thoughts I have and even a project that is happening right now if you want to experience it yourself. One, it's a complete and utter. So what's interesting is one of the reasons why this war started, from my opinion, is that the support base for Vladimir Putin and the current regime in Russia is the folks mostly who are either uneducated or the ones who want to bring the Soviet Union back. In 2014, people who remember Soviet Union, who were in their 2020s in 1990, when Soviet Union fell apart, they were in their 50s, early, uh, now they're in their 60s. So the support base of bringing the Soviet Union back is shrinking every day. At the same time, if you look at the discrete interviews of younger Russians, especially in towns, they are afraid to speak up, but they are seemingly more liberal, they're just scared. And so I think the war started because of the calculus that in a few more years, both Vladimir Putin will be too old and the population that supports him will be too old or shrink to the point where it's no longer the same. And so the propaganda in Russia is utter and it's focused on galvanizing that support group more and more. Like people who have critical thinking skills, they roll their eyes no matter what. They don't know what else is happening outside. There is a limited adaptation information. There's nothing from Ukraine that gets through. And when you hear the same message 50 times and there's no other message you're hearing, you'll start believing it. That's the issue. Free internet is very hard to get by. I mean, the youth is using VPN there. But for as long as there is a huge amount of people whose only source of information is state TV, and it's mostly everybody over 40, over 50, this will be an issue. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Oleg. Mike has a question. He says, in recent years, businesses have become more involved in geopolitical events that intersect with government responsibilities. And he's saying Facebook and Russian disinformation as an example, mm -hmm. Microsoft detecting Iranian hackers, et cetera. Mm -hmm. What is your stance on the responsibility that business should have in the world with respect to geopolitics? Do you have a mental model on how to evaluate such events and if your business should respond? I'm a strong believer that your business culture values need to be a guiding principle. And when you're joining a company as an employee, you need to make sure you join a company whose culture values are aligned with yours personally. And then as an employee, you should make sure, you should keep your employer in check to walk in the walk on the culture values they declared. And from my perspective, it was very easy for me to lean into the situation because that's what our culture values were dictating. Like, we take care of our people. Well, there was a question when we were moving the team out of Ukraine. We just hired literally two interns like two days before we were moving. So the question was, okay, what do we do with interns? We just hired them. We don't even, we haven't even started. Do we count them as our people or not? Easy answer, yes, because we take care of our people. And so where I'm going with this is, there have been a number of cases where companies 
have done the right thing by following their values. And there are a number of companies who did not follow their values and have not done the right thing. A few examples come to mind. And there was one even in the US that I'm still reading from. There's a company called, and this is public information, I don't know how it got out. There's a company called Patreon that basically was collecting payments for a number of Ukrainian nonprofits. And when the donations surged, Patreon froze all the accounts of these nonprofits. And when people tried asking questions why and what's going on, Patreon basically did not want to take a position of who is right, who is wrong early in the war, especially with the situation of they didn't know if Ukraine is going to fold in two, in two days, and then you'll be on the bad side of Russia. And I suppose Russia is a big part of their market share. And so they were taking the safe position. Same story happened with a number of European country companies that are supplying Russia right now, like car manufacturers and stuff like that. I believe that taking a strong position and walking the walk is the way you should be doing. Thank you, Oleg. George McClymont, who's a Breakline alum and People AI employee, has a question for you. He says, can you talk about how you managed these two full-time, very demanding jobs? One, coordinating these efforts to assist Ukraine, and two, running your company at the same time. You're obviously exceeding at both. How did you do it? That's a great question. Thank you, George. I mean, I was lucky. Uh, early on, when the war just started, and I realized that my time and my help has way more leverage spent in the Ukraine direction. And by the way, now it's a little bit easier because all of the burning questions already settled in. Things are moving. But early on, it was a mess. Like There were few branches of Ukrainian military that were completely decimated in terms of command and control structure in the first 48 hours. So help was needed at that point. So when I posted a couple of these posts on LinkedIn, and I also wrote a couple of posts on our internal Slack, my team, including George, came to me and said, hey, how can we help? What can we do? We want to contribute. We want to be a part of this. And my response was, you know what? I'm uniquely positioned to be the person in between folks I know in Ukrainian government and in Silicon Valley. And so I could probably project the most leverage here. But what you can do to help me is you can step up and run the business while I'm distracted and execute and deliver and beat the number and do whatever is needed to be done so that you can give me space to do what I'm uniquely positioned to do right now, which is help Ukraine. And you know what was amazing? I just observed the team get together and like really step up and give me space that I needed. So George, to your question, I was able to do both. I wasn't. With the help of this team taking extra steps forward, working harder, you know, coming together, I didn't have to do much as a CEO for the first three, four weeks of when my help was needed for Ukraine. So thank you. Thank you, Oleg. Chris has a question. He says, what else would you hope to see American and European business leaders do to support the people, government, and armed forces of Ukraine? That's a very complicated question. Being a political science student, I understand the trade-offs that governments have to deal with in this case. But we're looking at the most atrocious kind of way of waging war since the Nazi Germany right now. And we all have to ask ourselves a question, are we okay with that happening? And if we are not, I mean, money is the easy answer and very simple way to help is a nonprofit called Comeback Alive, which has been very effective at helping Ukraine. But that's the easy button. What else can you do in Europe and the United States? 
you can apply pressure on your elected officials to help more. That's what democracies are there for. And Zelensky is Zelensky because there are people behind him, not only enabling him, but also keeping him in check to do the right thing. We need to do the same here. We need to be keeping our elected officials, congressmen, etc., senators in check to do the right thing, which is help Ukraine more. I mean, obviously, it's weapons, it's supplies, it's fuel. Russia has hit most of the fuel of the, in Ukraine in the past week. And yeah, like the, the dilemma in Europe right now is, are we okay not taking a hot shower at night in Germany and using less gas versus help Ukraine? That is literally the question people are asking. Like, it's spring. It's not that cold. And it's not that much gas that needs to be cut off to send a very powerful message to Russia. Oh, like, what do you There was a simple stat. Literally, there was a stat that if everybody in Germany lowered their thermostat by, like, three degrees and didn't take a shower, like, the demand would fall, like, insanely for Russia. Oh, like, for folks sitting here maybe looking at you and saying... This is somebody who knows the CEOs of major corporations. He knows the senior people in the Ukrainian government. Like he has all the right assets to put against this. What can I do, you know, as one person? Can you talk a little bit about the concept that you have about every little bit helps? Yeah, absolutely. And also it doesn't just help, it scales. And so what was really interesting for me to observe through this process is how a number of people stepped up in a very unexpected ways. Like, I mean, I just observed a dentist saying, hey, I'll be doing dental work for free as long as you donate the amount of money you had paid me to Ukraine. I've seen a very simple thing. There is a website called, I think an anonymous hackers built it. It's called, the URL is 1920.in, random URL. It literally gives you a phone number of a random Russian person and a text message in Russian to send. So you can send a bunch of text messages sharing the current news with the Russian populace. And there is millions of people doing that. There is obviously financial support. I've ran across a group of ex-policemen who called up every police department in the U.S. and asked them for their old radios they don't use anymore. And collected like 20,000 radios, Motorola radios, and shipped them to Ukraine, whose military suddenly swelled up with all the conscripts. They don't have basic comms. Like, there's a lot of things you can do if you think about it. I'm sure there is some old equipment that can be collected somewhere. I'm sure that it, it sits on some shelf somewhere. I'm sure there is food or supplies that can be sent. I'm sure there is letters that can be sent to congressmen to help with things. Like, Ukraine is putting out what they're asking for publicly all day long. Thank you, Oleg. And Marley has a question about the long term. And the question is, how can we best continue to provide useful and meaningful support to the people of Ukraine, both now, but also in the long term? I mean, as Mm -hmm. you said about your home city of Kharkiv, a city of one and a half million people, same size as Philadelphia. Yeah. Where where, can you describe? Yeah, it's gone. Yeah. Yeah. So So how do we show up over the long term? So that is a very important question. Because Ukraine will win, there is no way at this point, the posture of the war, short of clear weapons use, is that there'll be some kind of territorial loss on the Ukrainian side, but it's not going to be deadly. And Ukraine will persist and will likely become one of the leading countries in Europe. What you can do now, besides things I mentioned, actually take in a family. There is 4 million displaced families. I 
was trying to help my friend's family. And I ran into this group of people in Ottawa who literally went door to door and identified like over a thousand families who are ready to take in temporarily some refugees. And Ottawa, a small town in the US, is accepting thousands of people right now, which is incredible. I'm sure US can do the same. So that's now. Later, the most important thing later will be to enforce whether the money that was seized from Russia, we're talking about almost a trillion dollars, is actually being sent back to Ukraine for rebuild. And that is in all of our hands to apply pressure on the governments to actually send that money back. Because there have been a lot of cases where money was promised and seized and whatnot, including there was a Ukrainian oligarch who like did some crimes and escaped to the United States in the 90s. Legally, that money should go back to Ukraine, but it's still in the US. So what we can do is we can make sure Ukraine has the funds to rebuild. Thank you, Oleg. When George asked his question, you talked about the importance of team, you know, and a whole team showing up and really being able to compensate and perform even when one person is taken offline. Rachel's asking, what are the qualities that you're valuing most in your team during such a difficult situation? You talked about some of them. You talked about the self-starting. You talked about the sense of responsibility you know, the willingness to move forward and get things done. What else are you particularly proud of and or would you be looking for in new folks to join People AI? I'm going to go back to our culture values, which have been designed since 2017. And what's interesting for me is some of them I truly relate with. Some of them initially were a little bit kind of like more of a desired state, not the current state. But over the years, they all became the current state. Like the company truly, truly embodies them. And so what I truly value in the team is I wasn't the only one who leaned in the situation and tried to help. We have a Russian person on the team who ran a fundraiser to raise money for equipment for our folks who went back to fight. There's a handful of those. So what I observed is that the culture values, like with the care of people, is not just a no-brainer for me. It was a no-brainer for everybody on the team made a huge difference. And so that's the piece. Like as I'm looking at people who are joining us right now, the culture filter is already happening and the team kind of is accepting or rejecting folks in the interview process because this has formed as a tribe in some way. And so I don't know if I answered the question, but it's really interesting to observe how something else comes to mind. Through one of the projects I worked with US Special Forces Command in Europe. They helped out with a few things. And I got a phone call from someone, a cold LinkedIn message from someone really high up in Sakur. And they respond with, just send me one note out of nowhere saying, great people step up in the toughest times. And that is what I saw happen with our team. The great people on the team stepped up and took some load. That is something that I'll never forget. Oh, like, again, I keep thinking about you caring so deeply about individuals and then also being able to zoom up and affect scaled change and scaled progress. And if we come back to your team, you mentioned in those remarks that members of your team actually enlisted. So you relocated Mm -hmm. them to Western Ukraine and Europe, and then they came right back in to the front lines. Can you talk about how People AI is supporting their families? 
yeah, payroll was not a question. Like, hey, done. Don't worry about it. Just come back alive. And obviously, their families financially taken care of. We have an amazing HR site lead in Europe right now who has been 24-7 working nonstop to make sure everybody is accounted for where they are. The plan we executed was almost flawless, like it worked. And I mean, the best thing we can do right now is to provide them with financial security, job security, as well as whatever we can do with like equipment, money, help, whatever it is. So that's all done. Unfortunately, we are no longer in touch with them because as they are on the front lines, there is operational silence in some way. We hear from them once in a while that they're alive. But overall, I actually feel really bad about not being with them. But then on the other hand, the best I can do is probably here and at scale. Like I know we're coming up on time. We have a question from Brandon for you, which is Mm -hmm. so much of our lens into Ukraine over the past few months has been painted by current events and the war. Can you share a personal story about your home country, what you cherish about Ukraine, its people, and why it's such an incredible nation? That's a really good question. So I have an interesting, a very unique position, which is I moved out of Ukraine in 2003. So I both had the inside look and the outside look at the country. What people don't realize about Ukraine is that the population of Ukraine developed their sense of independence and pride not in the last 30 years. The Cossacks in 1600, Ukraine declared independence from Russia in 1905 or something like that, like during the First World War and lasted for about five years. There have been independence movements happening over the years. Ukraine has been in some way waiting for this moment of not a chance, but in this case, being forced to, but they were ready to stand up and fight. So the longevity of that is something that my friends in the United States don't really know about, that U.S. independence war was, what, five years? So I don't recall the exact number. Ukraine independence war has been five centuries, or like since the Mongols, like eight centuries. That is rooted really, really deep in everybody's DNA. And that's the reason why Russia has caused previous genocide. In 1932, they literally forcefully removed all the food from Ukraine and caused, like, I think almost 10 million Ukrainians to die from hunger. So that's a tidbit that doesn't connect the dots in most people's minds that this struggle that is speaking right now isn't new. It's been going on forever. It just, unlike the U.S. situation where there's a big ocean in between, Ukraine is surrounded from all directions by Russia. So so that's the macro story. I know we have three, four minutes. On the more micro story, personal story, I mean, going back to my friend who's who's a medic, he didn't have to fight. And being a single dad, I don't know how much courage it will take for you to go and endanger yourself, leaving a 16-year-old daughter behind. That's crazy. But to him, it was a no-brainer because that's the culture. Other stories... Like the oh, another thing that is really fascinating is in 2014, Ukrainian there was a lot of betrayal. Ukrainian military was not ready. There was literally purposeful harm done to Ukrainian military in advance of Russian invasion by subverted elements. The number of volunteers who stepped up to supply a ragtag army back then wasn't ready. Who brought in? equipment, night vision goggles, all this stuff, even basic clothes that they didn't have in the army was not in hundreds, it was in tens of thousands. And so 
that was probably the first time when something really important woke up in me. Is when I saw a broad group of population really getting up and doing something. Oleg, do we have time for one quick one? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Which is from Sam. And he's saying, I'm sure you've had so many people in your circle reach out, offering words of condolence and words of encouragement. Many of us have personal friends and colleagues going through this right now with family and friends back home. What can we say to them? What is the best word of encouragement you've heard in the last few months? I already mentioned it. The great people step up in the toughest times, but it doesn't mean that everybody can step up and contribute there. But everybody, I think, can do a little bit, just a bit. In terms of encouragement, I mean, to be honest, in some way, Ukraine already won. It won the hearts and minds of the whole world. And so from that perspective, Russia lost the war and Ukraine will exist and it's not going to disappear at this point. It could have disappeared two days into the war and just be there, show up when Ukraine needs you. Oleg Roginsky, CEO of People AI, thank you so much for your courage, the example that you're setting, for the stories that you've shared, and for the inspiration today. Really appreciate the time together. Thanks to the whole community, including Kevin Bastney, who made this possible. Appreciate it, Oleg. Thank you, everybody. And amazing questions. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of the Breakline Arena. We're hoping that you're walking away feeling a little moved little inspired. And if you really had a good time, feel free to head on over, rate, subscribe, leave us a review. It does help us spread the good word, keeps these good vibes rolling. Yes, we would love to hear from you. Thanks again. And we will see you next time.